Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. So I've, I've titled my message, um, I Was Wrong. And, you know, as I pulled this together, um, it, I found it really, really challenging, uh, personally. And um, even at times, as I was putting it together, I thought, you know, God, I'm, I'm not actually even adequate to bring this message. And... and God just reminded me in that moment, he's, he just reminded me that, you know, you don't have to be perfect for God to use you. And so before, before I start, I just want to really encourage you, you know, because I was encouraged by that because, you know, I could quite honestly just put a big mirror here right in front of, uh, right in front of um, my message here and I could just preach to a mirror. Um, I'm not up here this morning from any position of perfection bringing this message. This is just as relevant to me as I hope it is to you. But I want to encourage you that um, you don't have to be perfect to step out and, and, and have God use you. And um, if you find in life that you hold back because you don't feel like you're worthy to do something, then I want to encourage you, don't let that hold you back. Because... Um, God can use imperfect vessels for his good. Amen? So, um, so I've, I've titled the message, I Was Wrong. Um, and it's fair to say that admitting you're wrong doesn't come easily. Um, it's a fundamental condition of the human heart to struggle to admit when we're wrong. And, you know, I thought... Do I have a story of when I was wrong? And I thought about it and I just thought, no, I can't think of anything. <laughs> and then I thought, maybe there is one. Maybe there is one. And I thought, oh, well, I'll share that one with you. So, um, so it was when Sarah and I were dating and, um, and I had my first car, Pride and Joy, um, as a lot of people's first cars were. Anyway, the... Um, the battery was showing signs of, of wearing out. And I thought, you know, why get someone who knows what they're doing to fix it? Why don't you do it yourself? So I thought that's what I'll do. So I um, got myself organised, went and bought a new battery, got all prepared. And Sarah was renting in um, Best Street in Devonport. So I thought, so the car was on the, on the street there and I thought, I'm going to get in and do this job. Anyway, so I pulled the old battery out, put the new one in, started to connect it. There was a few sparks. thought, you know, it's probably pretty normal, you know, replacing a battery, it's electrical. So there's a few sparks, sort of jumped back a bit, but it was okay. So then I start to, start to connect the, the new battery in. Um, anyway, I was, I was working on one. I thought, gee, that's tight. And so I had to loosen the terminal right off and I'm trying to force it onto the terminal. I thought, this is way tighter than the last one. Um, so I'm, I'm pushing it on and pushing it on and I can only just get it on and I thought, oh, that's a bit dodgy, but anyway. 
So then I went to work on the other terminal and, and it was just really, really loose on the terminal. Anyone who knows cars probably starting to understand. So I'm tightening it up and I would tighten the terminal up as tight as I could get it and it was still loose. So I can't believe I did this actually now I think about it. <laughs> so I thought, what am I going to do? So I went and got some aluminium foil. I thought, that's a really good idea. So I got some aluminium foil and I thought, I've got to build the battery terminal up so that the terminal will hold tight. So, so I got some um, aluminium foil and I wrapped it up and I'm building this terminal up trying to get, um, trying to get the, 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 um, the terminal to be nice and tight. Anyway, Sarah wanders out. And uh, she looks at what I'm doing and I'm getting a little frustrated at this point, it's fair to say. Um, and she just walks over quite, um, quite calmly with a gentle and quiet spirit um, and she says, Jeff, is that battery in the wrong way? To which I responded that neither her opinion or presence was required. Um, and, and carried on on my way with my aluminium foil. Now, we're in Best Street in Devonport and um, let's just say it wasn't the posh area of Best Street and uh, a guy's just wandering down the street and he sees me mucking around and he comes over and he says, oh, what are you doing? I said, I'm just replacing my battery. He goes, he goes oh, you've put it in the wrong way. Um, these are his exact words. He said, yeah. He said, they make the two terminals different sizes to stop morons putting their batteries in the wrong way. <laughs> um, so, where do I go with that? Um, so, I had to... There was really no way out of that for me. I had to admit that I was wrong. Um, and I had to apologise to Sarah, which... Sometimes doesn't come easy to us, does it? Just to admit that we're wrong. Um, and when you think about it, it's something so simple. So simple just to say, you know what, I was wrong. But we get to that point where we've got to, where we've got to do that and sometimes those words coming out of our mouth become so difficult. So I want to take you right back to the start with Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3, um, verses 11 to 13. Now, we know the story. The, the back story is that um, we know that there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil and Adam and Eve were told not to eat from it. So, they've eaten from the tree um, and uh, immediately their eyes were opened. They realised that they were naked. So, they heard God in the garden and they've gone and hidden. And, uh, and they told God, you know, we were hiding because we were naked. And God says to them, who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman who gave, who gave me, you, the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Now, 
it's really, you know, our ability to backflip on things is astounding at times. And I think Adam is the perfect example here. Now, can I take a little bit of license here? Um, because the Bible doesn't really explain it in any sort of detail. But I imagine when Adam was first presented with Eve. And I think that Eve was perfect. She was perfect. No sin. So here before Adam is the perfect woman. And I can just imagine Adam saying, thank you, God. He would have been absolutely... um, uh, He would have been so happy with Eve. And... You know, and he would have thanked God and said, oh, you know, Eve's amazing, thank you. And yet, right in the moment where Adam's done something wrong, here he is actually blaming God and blaming Eve. So not long before, he's thanking God and he's so thankful for Eve. As soon as he does something wrong, he completely backflips and he says, it was the woman you gave me. He's blaming God. He's saying, you gave her to me. It's not my fault. It's your fault. And she gave me the fruit. She gave me the fruit. And God asks the woman, Eve, what have you done? Well, the serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. It's the human condition right there at the start is to not accept responsibility for our actions. So Adam accuses Eve and God. Eve accuses the serpent. So right here, our human condition can be summarised by we struggle to follow God's commands for our lives and then when we don't, we blame someone else. It's very simple. And if we're really, really honest and if we look into our own lives, we can see those two principles at play. We struggle to do what God wants us to do and then when we don't do it, we find someone else or something else to blame. So we've got two problems. We've got the problem of disobedience. We don't do what we're supposed to do. And then we've got the problem of repentance, which is owning up when we have done the wrong thing and what we do about it. Now, I was going to predominantly focus on repentance this morning, but God really opened some things up to me around disobedience and I really want to unpack some of that this morning as well. So, what's the challenge with disobedience? Now, there's two main facets to disobedience that I want to really try and unpack because it's so important as the church that we understand this. Because there's one facet to obedience where we do not have the ability to be obedient. We don't have that ability. But the other facet is that we do have the ability to be obedient. And both statements are correct. And sometimes we can get really, really confused around obedience and what that means and what it means to live for God And we either put it in the too hard basket or we end up in two forms of extreme. 
And the two forms of extreme are that if we only believe that we do not have the ability to be obedient, then lawlessness will abound. So if we only believe, well, you know, we don't have the ability to be obedient in life, so it doesn't matter what we do. We can live however we want to live. You know, God will forgive us. Jesus died for us on the cross, so it doesn't matter. We don't have the ability, so don't worry about it. Lawlessness will abound. But if we only believe that we have the ability to be obedient, then we run the risk of falling into legalism where we live under the legalism that we must be perfect, that we must always do the right thing. And so we have the two extremes when it comes to obedience and what we've got to do is we've got to actually understand um, both aspects of it and we've got, to, we've got to learn how to live in the middle of it. Now, Paul talks a lot about this in Romans. Does anyone find Romans hard going at times? It's, it's a deep, deep book in the Bible. And it can be tough, but I want to try and attempt just to open a little bit of it up this morning. So, because Paul really unpacks this aspect of obedience in our lives in Romans. This is where he really tackles it and he tries to start opening it up um, for us to understand. So in Romans chapter 5, and I'm just going to paraphrase this, I'm not going to read chapter 5. But in um, in this chapter, Paul starts to talk about the inability to be obedient under the law. And we've got to understand where Paul came from because we all know Paul's history. So Paul used to be Saul and Saul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. So he was, um, he was the police, in, I guess that's the moral police of, um, of Judaism. So the Pharisees were the ones that were promoting the law and they were, they were saying, you know, this is what you have to do. And so Paul was... Um, he would have known the law back to front. And the thing is with the law, the law is a good thing. It's basically God just telling us this is how you should live. He's created us. He knows how we should best live. And so God has given us laws um, to live around. But because of us and because of the fall, then things get complicated when it gets to law. And we, we, we experience that today, don't we? I mean, our laws, even in our country, continue to get more and more complex. Why do they keep getting more and more complex? Because our sinful nature works out loopholes and so they try and close loopholes by making laws more and more complex. And that's what God had to do with the Israelites. Because if you think about it, in the Garden of Eden, there was just one law. The law was just don't eat of one tree. That's it. That was the only law. But Adam and Eve broke that law. So then we move on to Moses and we have 10 laws. So we've got a, we're not quite getting it. So God gives us 10 laws to follow. Still pretty straightforward and basic. They're not, they're not overly complex, but we need a few more laws because we've got to try and follow that. Now, I'm not an expert in Judaism, But 
now Judaism has in the vicinity of 600 laws that you need to follow. And this is what the Pharisees promoted. They promoted these laws and you had to know them off by heart and you had to follow them. But the thing was is that with the law, you either do it all or you failed the whole thing. There's no in-between. And so in Romans chapter 5, Paul's saying, I used to be there. I used to be a Pharisee that promoted the law. But as we know, the Pharisees didn't fulfill the law. They just had an outward appearance of following the law. And that's when Jesus attacked the Pharisees, didn't he? And he said, you whitewashed tombs, you know. You're white on the outside. You make yourself look like you're following the law, but inside you're dead man's bones. Jesus saw straight through them. And so Paul's been converted here and he's saying, he's saying, you can't do it. You cannot follow these laws and succeed. You will not be able to do it because Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, realised he couldn't do it. And so in chapter 5, Paul's saying, we um, thank, thank, thanks to God that Jesus came and died for us, that we can now live under grace. We don't have to be perfect because we're never going to be perfect. And so we now live in grace where we are covered by Jesus' sacrifice um, that when we sin, we have a saviour that is there to forgive us because he's been the perfect sacrifice. Amen. So Paul talks about this in chapter 5. And so this, he summarises in chapter 5 our inability to be obedient. Paul's saying, you can't do it. Don't try because you will fail, okay? But you don't need to worry about it because we've got a saviour who's there to forgive us. But interestingly, Paul goes straight into Romans chapter 6 with a different slant because of the risk of lawlessness because we've just talked about well you can't be perfect so why bother trying and Paul knew that's the way we would think as humans we're like well if we can't be perfect why bother let's just do whatever we've got a saviour who can forgive us so let's just do whatever we want and we'll be fine God will forgive us his blood will cover a multitude of sins so what does Paul say in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4? Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. So Paul's saying here that although we are sinners and we will continue to sin, we are not to take advantage of God's grace. Paul's saying no. It's not an excuse just to live however you want and do whatever you want because God's going to cover that. So, 
Then Paul really, in um, Romans chapter 7, you're going to have to bear with me because I'm going to read from verses 4 to 20. And Paul unpacks this a little bit more. And, this, and it's a little bit heavy, but, um, but we'll get through it. Because Paul really starts to hear, he's, you know, he's talked about in chapter 5, he said, you know, you're not, you can't do it on your own. But then in chapter 6 he's saying, but you can't sin. You can't just go on sinning as much as you want. So Paul starts to unpack this a little bit further and I want to read it um, from chapter 7 verses 4 to 20. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ and now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law but in the new way of living in the spirit. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would, have not, would not have that power. At one time I lived without the understanding of the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law which is good cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. So Paul's starting to unpack this. And I know that, you know, when you read that, you've got to read it over and over again because Paul gets quite deep here. But he's saying that the law actually exposes sin because without the law, we don't know what right and wrong is. And so Paul's saying, suddenly your eyes are opened to the law and suddenly you realise how much um, you're actually sinning. But Paul says something really interesting in verse 6. He says, Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. And that's a really key point that Paul is making there. Because Paul came out of living in the old way of obeying the letter of the law. So the Pharisees were like, this is what you have to do. You must follow these laws. And it was all about obeying the letter of the law in your own strength. But Paul's saying here we have a new way of living and that's living in the spirit. And we've got to get a hold of that, that the new way of living by the spirit is the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in and through us. 
And it's him that is making the changes within our lives. And it is him that is changing us from glory to glory. Like, like Blakey prayed this morning, that we would be changing, that we would be always becoming more and more like Christ. And Paul's saying, there's a new way that you've got to do it. So then Paul becomes really transparent here in verses 14 to 25. He says, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and it is good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that it is, that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature... I am a slave to sin. So we all know what an amazing person Paul was, but he's being really, really transparent here. And he's saying, I live with this tension in my life. He says, I, know, I love the law of God. I love righteousness. I love what is good. But I know what is good, but I keep doing that, which I don't actually want to do. And we have, to get, we have to get a handle of that in our own lives because, like I said before, there are two extremes. You can give up on obedience and say, well, I have no, I have no ability to be obedient, so I might as well not worry about it. Or you can be at the other extreme and say, and you can drive yourself in legalism and say, I have to be perfect for God. And both are wrong. And Paul's, Paul's saying there is a tension in our lives and that tension should be there because you have a sinful nature that keeps doing the wrong thing even though you know it's the wrong thing and you also have the Spirit of God at work in your life that is um, changing you to be a better person and to do the right thing. And this is one of the key things here is that that tension should exist in our lives. And if that tension isn't there, that is when you should be concerned. So we should always, every day, there is a battle going on in our lives between our own, our own sinful nature and the new life in God through Christ Jesus. And that is a tension that you will carry to your grave. 
And every day you've got to fight that battle. And it's hard work and it's not easy. But if you are in that tension every day, then that is a good thing. And you need to know that that is a good thing, that that tension is there because you, you are seeking God and you're having a desire to be righteous, but you're also recognising you're fighting with a sinful nature that's not perfect. And in that, you can be set free from condemnation when you do the wrong thing because I guarantee you, you will do the wrong thing. And you don't have to be condemned with that. But likewise, you know that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in you for righteousness. And there should be a deep desire within you for righteousness. There should be a desire to want to do the right thing, to live by God's laws. You should want to do that. And if that desire is not there, then you need to get on your knees before God and say, God, I need that desire because that is a sign of a Christian that you have a deep desire to do what is right. So when it comes to obedience, that tension is going to be there and you're going to have days where you let yourself down. There is no doubt about it. Paul had those days. If Paul had those days, we're going to have those days. You are going to let yourself down. But, the Spirit of God is still there. The Holy Spirit is still at work. And you've got to trust in that. And you've, got, and you've got to say, God, continue your work in me. Because we can't live obedient lives under our own strength. It has to be the Holy Spirit working in you. Our job is to put our sinful nature to death. That's our job. Because the, the Bible says you've got to take up your cross daily. So there is a war between your sinful nature and the Spirit of God in your life. Once you become a Christian, that war begins. And you have to get up every day and you have to choose which one are you going to feed today. Are you going to feed the sinful man in your life or are you going to feed the Spirit of God in your life? The only way to feed the Spirit of God is to put the old man to death. That's the cross. Because although Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all our sins, we then have to take up a cross in our own lives. And that is for our old self. Because like Paul said, there is nothing good in my old self. I think it's Isaiah that says... Our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. That's the best we have to offer. That's our old sinful nature and we have to, we have to understand that. We don't just need a bit of a clean-up for God. We need a death to ourselves. Being a Christian is all about saying, you know what, I'm sick of following myself. It's going nowhere. I want to start putting someone else ahead of myself and that's Jesus. He's got to be ahead of you and you've got to say, 
I don't want to live by this sinful man anymore. And he's got to be put to death. And the cross is painful. We have to be prepared that it's going to be painful. And every day we're going to have to get up and be willing to put that old sinful nature to death. But here's the supernatural thing about salvation. And this is what I love about the Holy Spirit. The supernatural thing is actually the restoration of man and his ability to be obedient through the desire for righteousness. That is a supernatural thing that occurs in every single person. To be restored and to see your life change to righteousness is nothing short of supernatural because our own sinful natures, you can try as hard as you want, you will not succeed. So if you start to see your life changing, that's the supernatural power of God working in your life. And it's through that desire for righteousness. It's that, it's that attitude of saying, God, I'm done with me. There's nothing good in me. He's got to die and I want you to live through me. I want to give the Holy Spirit my whole life, not just parts of it. Holy Spirit, come into my whole life and start shedding your light in my life. It's confronting because when the Holy Spirit starts to shed light in your life, it doesn't look that good. Be warned. It's ugly. But that's okay because it's got to die anyway. If, if you're not seeing ugly things in your life, you've got to ask God to shine a light in your life. If you're too comfortable, if you think, I'm doing fine, if that's your attitude, get on your knees and ask the Holy Spirit to shed light in your life because I guarantee you there's still areas where God needs to deal with stuff. Because it's a tension, it's a battle, it's a fight. And if you're not in a fight every day, you've got to ask God, why? Why am I not in this fight? So important as Christians that we're, that we're aware of that because what Satan wants is for us to not realise there's a battle for our lives. Because if, if Satan can get you not focused on that, then he can, he can get you to wander away with the desires of your own heart. And the Bible says that. Satan leads us away not with anything else other than the desires of our own heart because we have a sinful nature. And sin isn't horrible. Sin is attractive to our sinful nature. It's actually attractive. Lots of sinful things feel good in the moment. There's part of us that wants to do it. And so if Satan can get you away from realising that, he can lead you in down that path of self-gratification. And you don't even know you're doing it. That's how he works. It's not obvious. 
but with the Holy Spirit actively working in your life, shining a light in your life, the Holy Spirit will show you those things and you'll be like, oh, I didn't realise that was there. And he will deal with it. Here's the thing about sin. Through Jesus, we are set free from the judgment of sin. No question. No question about it. Through Jesus, we are set free from the judgment of sin. But here's the thing. We still have to live with the consequences of sin. See, the whole reason for the law was for us to live lives that God intended for us to live. God created us. He knows what's best for us and we have to trust him. He knows that sin will destroy you. God knows that. And he says, if you live this way, you will live the way that I intended and it's good. The way God intended for us to live is good, to live peaceful, joyful, fulfilled lives. Sin wants to destroy that. So, we have this tension in our lives. We have this tension between the inability to be obedient versus the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives that can give us the ability to be obedient to righteousness. So what do we do when we still do the wrong thing? Because here's the thing, you are still going to do the wrong thing. What does God demand from us? And the answer is repentance. See, God does not require us to be perfect and he never will. He's never going to require you to be perfect. But he does demand of us that we are repentant. He demands that of us. And here's the thing. Ongoing sin in your life without repentance is rebellion. And that's a dangerous place to be in. You are going to do the wrong thing, but how are you going to respond to that when you do the wrong thing? How are you going to respond? And God says, I need you to be repentant. And there are two aspects to godly repentance. The first thing is a heart of repentance. And the second thing is the action of repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And Paul says here, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Here's the thing. Repentance should hurt. Real repentance should hurt because what you are recognising is that you have hurt God and probably hurt people around you because that's what sin does. It hurts God, it hurts us and it hurts people around us. So true repentance should hurt. 
But here's the thing. Paul talks here about godly sorrow producing repentance or the sorrow of the world producing death. Godly sorrow leading to repentance is all about, and Paul says here, not to be regretted. Because if you do the wrong thing and you're repentant, there's two ways that you can go about it. The worldly sorrow is to say, I'm not good enough. I'm always going to do this. I'm hopeless. I'm useless. I'm no good to anyone. I'm no good to God. Now, you're sorry. Absolutely. But godly sorrow causes us to move on from that which we've done wrong, where there is no condemnation. Godly sorrow says, you know what, God, I am so sorry. But you understand that in that genuineness, God forgives you and says, right, pick yourself up, let's move on. I've forgotten about it and I want you to. And you get up and you say, right, I'm moving on. So that's the heart of repentance. Is your heart genuinely sorry for what you have done and ready to move on? So then Paul says in Acts chapter 26, verses 19 to 20, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus in Jerusalem and throughout all of the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. Paul says it there. He told them that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. So... Just having a heart for repentance is not enough. Paul's saying here, yes, you've got to have a heart for repentance, but then it's got to, work, it's got to follow through with actions. The New Living Translation says, prove they have changed by the good things they do. Is repentance in your life having that effect? Does it change your actions? Do you see Evidence in your life of that repentance because that's what true repentance is. It should always lead to action. The prodigal son, everyone knows the story. Two sons, one says to his father, can I have my fair share of things? I want to go do, I want to go do things my own way. I've got plans. This is what I want to do. So the father gives him his share and he goes off and he wastes it. And I want to pick it up. It's Luke chapter 15. I want to pick it up in verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, this is the son, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have enough food, have food enough to spare and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So here we have 
the heart of repentance in that son. It's a great example of the heart and both the action of repentance. So the son's here, he's on his own, and he has a shift in his heart. And where is the shift? He says, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. He's not saying, how can I get myself out of this situation with the least amount of cost possible? He's saying, I've done the wrong thing and this is going to cost me, but I need to go back to my father. So he returned home to his father and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son is... Son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. There's something about saying you were wrong. Repentance is a state of humility and a position of your heart and it's going to lead to action. It's to... It's to acknowledge that you've not only sinned against God, but you've most likely hurt others in the process. It's a willingness to accept the cost of sin. See, that son, he didn't say, can I come back and have all my share back again? And can I get my bedroom back? And um, can I have my old role back? That's not true repentance, trying to get out of things cheap. He said to his father, I'm no longer even to be, I'm no longer worthy to be even called your son. That is a heart of repentance. To say, I've done the wrong thing and I submit myself to you and whatever decision you make, but please will you have me back? And essentially, that needs to be our our attitude towards God. Not God, I've sinned. How can I get out of this the cheapest and easiest way without losing face? But to say, God, I have sinned against you and I need your forgiveness. And whatever that cost is, I'm willing to pay it because I've done the wrong by you and I want to be restored back to right relationship with you. That's true repentance. Here's the thing that I really picked up out of the prodigal son. When he left his father, his father never ever stopped loving him. And we can say that about God towards us. God will never ever stop loving you. But his sin caused him to remove himself from experiencing the love of his father. And when we sin, we will never, ever have God stop loving us. God is never going to stop loving you when you sin. But your sin has the ability to, room, to put you in situations where you're going to experience the consequence of that sin. And... Most times in our life when we go through hard times, not always, 
but a lot of times it's self-inflicted. Because that's what sin does to us and that's what God's trying to protect us from. Sin will eventually destroy you. That's what it does. And just because your sin is forgiven doesn't mean that you're excused from experiencing the consequences of that sin. So there are going to be times in life where we experience hard times because we've done the wrong thing. And we need to own that. There's no point turning to God and blaming God because, hey God, why are you putting me through these hard times when God's probably thinking you actually did that to yourself but I'm here for you anyway. I'll just invite the team to come back up. God honours repentance. True repentance, God honours it. You can be guaranteed that if you repent, God will be right there. If it is genuine repentance, God will be right there. You just have to have the humility to admit it. You have to be willing for it to cost you something. And you have to be willing to act on it. I want to finish with Hosea chapter 14. I love how this verse describes repentance and what it does with your relationship with God. So Hosea is talking about Israel here, but, you know, right through the Old Testament, Israel is just a perfect picture of the church. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity Receive us graciously. Take away all iniquity. God, take our sin away. We're not trying to get out of this lightly. We want you to take it away. We have a desire to be righteous for you. For we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. We will admit that we're wrong. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods, because Israel was building idols for themselves. They're recognising what they've been doing wrong. They've been trying to win wars on their own. They've been making idols with their own hands and worshipping them. And they're coming to God and saying, we were wrong. We've done the wrong thing, God. We're not going to do it anymore. There's an acceptance there. They're not trying to get out of it cheap. They're saying, God, we have done the wrong thing and we want to change. We want this sin gone and we want to live differently. And what does God say in verse 4? I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily 
and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread, his beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return, they shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. And Ephraim shall say, What do I have to do any more with idols? I have heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Do you want that to be a description of your life? Do you want to grow like the lily? Do you want to lengthen your roots like Lebanon? What poetry, branches spread, beauty like an olive tree. Do you want that to be a description of your life? If you do, we all we have to do is come to God in true repentance when we've done the wrong thing. And God will do that in your life. He will do that in your life. So I want to encourage you this morning. Don't be condemned when you do the wrong thing. Just come to God in repentance. But desire righteousness. Yes, Jesus has forgiven your sins, but that is not reason to go on sinning. We must desire to be righteous for him and let the Holy Spirit do his work in you. Let him shine that light in your life and get on your knees and ask God to do that. Thank you.